You know that game that everyone plays? Even storytellers like Stephen King and Tarantino. Where you ask yourself, if I could go back in time to meet Hitler before the war, would I kill him if I had the chance? Everyone I've ever heard answer that question says they would. And those storytellers I just mentioned? They created worlds where they posed that scenario and put their characters through the test. King, with the Dead Zone, gave us a fictional and slightly more contemporary character as metaphor for the real-life monster. And a clairvoyant, who attempts to kill the monster politician before he unleashes a nuclear holocaust. And Tarantino, with his inglorious bastards opus, set in the midst of the Nazi reign of horror, gave us a French woman who seized the opportunity to light their funeral pyre as they sat atop a mountain of celluloid film. Tarantino burned them all to a crisp with the literal combustible power of his form of art. Just even having that thought was, to me, perhaps his most beautiful screenwriting. With both those storytellers, their characters took the opportunity. They took the shot. We can imagine that we would have done the same because how would we live with ourselves otherwise? Hmm. Well, how would you feel if you had the opportunity to assassinate two of the worst and most infamous Nazis and you didn't take the shot? Even though you knew who they were and what they would soon do and your gut screamed at you to kill them both, but instead you listened to a silly woman who you were stripping whose private villa you were staying in, with the Nazis, and just watched them waltz away. Now imagine in that scenario, you were both a professional killer with the means and skill set to easily kill those two men, and a Jew. How would you cope with knowing that you let someone talk you out of eliminating Armin Goering, 16th president of the Reichstag and architect of the Reichstag fire, and Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's minister of propaganda and pure evil's most favored son. You could have wiped them from the history books before your own nation, America, had even entered the war. And then, imagine living with the torment of that missed opportunity for the rest of your life until your own friends gunned you down in another one of your mistress's living rooms. I'm certainly not trying to cause you to have empathy for this gangster who had more blood on his hands than almost any other and was ultimately killed because he turned into a sloppy thief. But unlike Stephen King's and Tarantino's stories, unlike the time travel game you may have played 
imagining what you would have done, this story is real. And the gangster was that boy who we met with his pants down in our first episode, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. I suppose in all great stories, there is a Rubicon moment that is crossed, a point of no return, so to speak, when a character or characters do something that irrevocably changes their world and raises the stakes. In feature screenwriting, we call this the midpoint and try our damnedest to build towards it so that it actually lands in the middle of the script hopefully by bringing the A and B storylines together in a unique way to advance the plot. But in our story, the story of the world beneath, the hundred-year history of mobsters and spies, that crossing the Rubicon point of no return moment happens at the end of the first act. Not long after our mobsters organize themselves, and our spies figured out how to listen in on enemies, foreign and domestic. They began to hunt one another. They became acquaintances on either side of the law, of society, of the rules of secrecy that shield both their work and way of life. Our mobsters and spies had just gotten to know each other after our heroine and godmother of the National Security Agency, Elizabeth Friedman, first hunted down and exposed the business empire of our gangsters. They had their meat cute when Elizabeth knocked down the dominoes that put away Al Capone. And before anyone could recover from that, bam, the hunter and hunted became partners. This was, of course, thanks to the Nazis, because they ruin everything. On a frozen February night in 1936, 160 of New York's finest waited for orders, shivering on designated street corners around Manhattan. A mysterious raid was afoot. As with all large police raids, this night was the first strike at an individual. The criminal behind whatever operation was sophisticated enough to require 160 police officers for just one raid. And still, nothing was guaranteed. It was merely an attempt to capture him from the ground floor up 80 locations were targeted in this first step. There would be many steps to follow. Any one of them could fail. But the size of this initial raid should have given those officers an idea of the kind of criminal who would, hopefully, be captured at the very top of the stairs. Someone big. Someone dangerous. Someone powerful enough that not a single one of those officers was to be trusted. Because the criminal behind the vast operation they were about to raid had his tentacles into every facet of law enforcement. A master of corruption. 
whose business was kept secret from these officers until five minutes before they were given the names and locations of the raid. Secrecy was pure necessity to have even the slightest chance of success. If the officers had thought about it, they would have figured it out. Perhaps they had. Perhaps they did. But the ice that formed in their mouths as they shivered and waited kept that thought from reaching their lips and escaping them. Only one man could bring all of New York law enforcement to a silent halt. In the minutes, just before the ground floor of his operation was raided. On that cold, cold night, February 1st, 1936, New York's Special Prosecutor of Organized Crime, Thomas Dewey, took the first step to finally getting his man. It was a fish so big even Dewey didn't dare to dream he could catch him when he first was appointed special prosecutor. He took the job when Tammany Hall's corruption of the courts in New York City was so pervasive, it became clear that no criminal kingpin would ever face justice. The city had masters, and they weren't the good guys. The district attorney was in the pocket, and New Yorkers had had enough. So the governor stepped in and forced the corrupt DA to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate the mob. Thomas Dewey ended up with the job, and he was perfect for it. Dewey assembled a 20-member investigative team and set the goal of taking down the city's myriad of crime bosses. He began with the numbers rackets, called policy rackets back in the day, this was the illegal lottery and gambling circuit run by organized crime. And the mob boss who Dewey had his sights on for that was Arthur Flegenheimer, a.k.a. Dutch Schultz. To get Dutch, Dewey went right to the press. Knowing that the mob's control over the city was through sheer fear and terror, Dewey made a public offer. Come forward, talk to my team, and we will protect you. No one had ever done that. He went further, defining exactly what the mob was before we even had the term mafia. There is today scarcely a business in New York which does not somehow pay its tribute to the underworld, a tribute levied by force and collected by fear. There is certainly not a family in the city which does not pay its share of tribute to the underworld every day it lives and with every meal it eats. This huge, unofficial sales tax is collected from the ultimate consumer in the price he pays for everything he buys. Dewey made a specific plea to organized workers, knowing that organized crime had taken control of their unions. If you will come to my offices in the Woolworth building, you will be seen by a responsible member of my staff. He will welcome your help. He will respect your confidence. He will protect you. You will not read your testimony in the newspapers, nor will the heads of your union learn you have been to the office. And immediately, 
the calls to Dewey's office flooded in. People started yapping. Who were they? What did they know? Well, they were workers and neighbors who knew about prostitutes and businessmen who knew about prostitutes and wives who knew about their husbands who were tied in with the prostitutes. It was not what Dewey expected. And at first, he didn't pay attention to it. Vice was a moral issue. Dewey wanted to catch his kingpins on illegal gambling, murder, and extortion. These revenue streams are what he knew to be their business. And Dewey wanted their businesses exposed and dismantled. He wanted to hit them in their wallets. He wanted that glory. Getting gangsters on tax fraud was one way, Elmer Irie's way, to catch them, while putting a dent in their business empire. But it had proved elusive to Dewey. He wasn't the head of the treasury, didn't have six different federal law enforcement agencies to draw from, or a congressional law giving him such powers. As for vice crimes, going after prostitution would just lower the standing of his office, he believed. But more importantly, neither Dewey nor anyone else saw prostitution as a racket controlled by a kingpin. To think that there was an organization behind it, rather than just women and men as individuals earning the living the old-fashioned way, defied the logic of the era. The combination, while known to Elmer Irie, did not quite make sense to Dewey when he was first appointed. He focused on what he knew he was good at, murder, extortion, rackets. And he was good. So good that he scared the bejeebus out of his primary target, Dutch Schultz. And then, Dutch was murdered. Ironically, to stop him from putting a hit on Dewey, which, in turn, fucked up Dewey's case. If you remember, Dutch was a big fish, but not the biggest. Still, his death left a hole in Dewey's game plan. To keep going, Dewey could reach across to an equal-sized gangster. He could reach down and try and round up some smaller fishes. Or he could reach up. And in that reach, there was only one name. It was an impossible catch. And Dewey didn't have Elizabeth Friedman helping him overcome the impossible. But he did have, well, something that no gangster ever sees coming. A brilliant woman. Okay. This is where I tell you about yet another woman who took down a criminal empire because she had the power to imagine and see that which no man around her could. Another woman that the men writing history erased. Eunice Carter. Eunice was a black lawyer from a prestigious African-American activist family and the only woman on Dewey's team. He tasked her as a special prosecutor's designated secretary 
to manage, among other things, all of the tips coming into the office, the tips that Dewey had made the public plea to get. Eunice was an attorney by education and trade and had been a Republican political candidate who took on a Tammany Hall lackey. She lost the latter race, but she would go on to win the ultimate prize of taking down America's biggest gangster. Because she pieced his prostitution racket together. She gathered all the details, used them to carve his silhouette onto Manhattan's bordello walls, and stepped back to see the bigger picture of his empire. Prostitution in New York was controlled by one man. And on a frozen February night in 1936, when 160 of New York's finest were shivering on designated street corners around Manhattan, Dewey finally showed his card. The card that Eunice had handed him. The police got their orders for the raid. They entered 80 brothels, half of which had been tipped off despite Dewey's hardened secrecy tactics, and rounded up the gangsters, prostitutes, Johns, who were lawyers, bankers, civil servants, his madams, and his bookers. Thanks almost solely to Eunice Carter, this was the night Lucky Luciano finally went down. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Lucky Luciano got wind of his impending arrest and fled to Hot Springs, Arkansas. Having long before corrupted that state's politicians, it would take a Herculean effort by Thomas Dewey and his connections to finally get Lucky extradited to New York. Remember, these were state charges, not federal. Back in New York, Lucky's trial was a complete circus in terms of the press and the security. We'll have an entire season where I get into it, but for now, just know that, like Elizabeth Friedman, for a brief moment, America did know Eunice Carter's name. At that time, no one believed that Lucky would be convicted. But despite what some authors may have written about the case against Lucky, Eunice was impeccable in her work and Dewey and the rest of the team in theirs. And on June 7, 1936, Luciana was convicted on 62 counts of compulsory prostitution. Eleven days later, he was sentenced to 30 to 50 years in state prison and ultimately found his way upstate 
to the Clinton Correctional Facility. So that's where Luciano sat, with his own kitchen, mind you, when Meyer Lansky and Abner Longy's Willman were swept up in a side project, one that would pave the way for the Navy to come knocking on Luciano's cell and set him free. The policy rackets that Dewey had tried to catch Dutch Schultz with were actually a much larger enterprise than anyone realized at the time. They were part of the whole-scale gambling industry that Torrio and Rothstein had originally organized, and Meyer would eventually rocket into the stratosphere. Since the time when Arnold Rothstein fixed the World Series, all types of professional athletes were swept up in the rackets. Boxers being top of the list, and Jewish boxers who came out of the YMHA, the Young Men's Hebrew Association, during the heydays of Prohibition, occupied a special place in Rothstein's, then Meyer's, operation. Longies Willman, Meyer's New Jersey underboss, was in even deeper with the boxers, running his boys out of Newark's Third Ward. In author Warren Glover's words, quote, Jewish boxers fought because they loved it, hoped to become champions, and needed to make money. They didn't fight to prove Jewish masculinity or to defend their heritage, despite the romantic notion of the Jewish boxer as a fighter against anti-Semitism. Yet, these boxers did not retreat from their Jewish identity. As many boxers aged out of their profession in the 1930s, the circuit was rough on the body, and athletes did not last long in it. The Jewish gangsters snapped them up as muscle, collectors of and enforcers of the policy and extortion rackets. The mob was great at workforce evolution. If you had a talent, they would keep using it and recycling it. And the boxers had one final phase to their gifts, beyond the muscle, which would receive its own catchy name, the Minutemen. As early as the 20s, when the Nazis began to show themselves in the streets of New York and New Jersey, first as the Friends of New Germany, then its successor, the German-American Bund. Meyer, Longy, and every Jewish gangster and boxer in their employ knew exactly what they were looking at. These men's families had fled the pogroms of Russia and Eastern Europe. They took notice. They knew what the language and mimetics of anti-Semitism led to. They knew what was coming for them and for every Jew. They knew the threats and the stakes. These Nazi Cretans, who were their own neighbors, wanted their demise and the demise of democracy, no matter how many American flags the Nazis wrapped themselves in or posters of George Washington they hung. Meyer, Longy, and their Minutemen knew, long before the rest of America or even our future allies in Europe. So, 
they infiltrated the Bund. From their public rallies, to their secret meetings, to their relationships with the press and politicians, and beat the living crap out of them. The Jewish gangsters used all of the leverage they had in the streets, in the boardrooms, in the press rooms, and even in Congress to beat back the Nazi movement in America. And they did it on their own dime. They also kept a close watch on what the criminal bosses of the German-American Bund were doing over in the homeland, Germany. They came to know the names of Hitler's men. They watched the relationship form between the Axis alliance. They had ears on the ground in Italy, through their own Italian-American partners, to keep a sharp eye on Hitler's man-crush, Mussolini. They were in a position, as lords of the underworld, to learn shit before even our allies or spies. They knew. And of course, the they includes one of Meyer's oldest and closest friends and partners, Bugsy Siegel. In the 1930s, Meyer and Lucky had sent Bugsy Siegel to California to expand operations there. But not before Siegel had his chance to punch some Nazis. Bugsy knew the Bund well, and they were very clear about their aims for all Jews an alignment with and inspiration from their Führer and his party back in Germany. As a gangster, Siegel hadn't changed much since his teenage days with his pants down in the lower Manhattan ghettos. His confusion between love, lust, and loyalty would be his downfall in the end. In 1938, it led him to a married Italian countess who had an open marriage and a penchant for the California coast. She dabbled in Bugsy and explosives and couldn't resist bringing both of them back to Italy with her. Countess Di Frasso had found an investment opportunity for her vast fortune in Atomite, a new explosive material that she had seen a demonstration of somewhere in the desert around California with Bugsy. She phoned her husband about it, and he thought Il Duce, otherwise known as Mussolini, might be interested. So, back to Italy, the Countess went with her two favorite new things in tow. It was at the Countess's villa, Villa Madama, just outside of Rome, where the Adamite demonstration for Mussolini took place. And Il Duce brought two of his favorite new things as well. Ermen Goring and Joseph Goebbels. Bugsy recognized them immediately. Author Timothy Newark even quotes Bugsy as saying to his mistress at the time, quote, I saw you talking to that fat bastard Goring. I'm gonna kill him. And that dirty Goebbels too. He meant it. But the Countess objected pleading for her husband's life, who would surely be killed by Mussolini if Bugsy made good on his threat. The Adamite demonstration was a bust. The explosives gave only a fizzle, 
and Il Duce expected a boom. He went on to ruin the lives of the Countess and her husband anyway, out of spite for embarrassing him and wasting his time. As for the Nazis, who knows if the Countess regretted calling her lover off, but can you imagine if he'd done it, what the world would be like now? I suppose Mussolini complicated many things for the Americans seeking to end Hitler's rise, including back home, with our own government's assessment of certain segments of our citizenry's embrace of fascism. Meyer and Bugsy's Italian-American partners were not so one-sided about the burgeoning fascism in Europe. Mussolini was a powerful figure for the Italians, and his propaganda was circulating in the U.S. during the Prohibition era, predating that of the German-American Bunds. The New York Times ran somewhat favorable press on Il Duce's prowess in Italy, even granting him an interview. And the press at large would carry the water for Mussolini's own claims that he had defeated the mafia in his home country. One would think that this false claim would have roiled our own Italian gangsters, and yet, it made things more complicated for Meyer and Longy when it came to engendering support for their fight against fascism. Despite the bonds of criminality and all the power Meyer wielded as chairman of the board, this fight was personal, if not private. And for much of its duration, left out of the business that Meyer and Lucky ran. By the time he was in prison, Luciano had his own fully formed opinion of Il Duce. He hated him. And if he were to somehow be released from his prison term, he would be deported back to Italy to live under the Mussolini regime. There was no reason for that in the immediate. Lucky was running things just fine from where he was. He appointed Vito Genovese as acting boss of his family, which was primarily drenched in the drug trade, while still weighing in as capo di tutti capi of the commission, the boss of bosses. But, Vito got sideways with one of his ordered hits only a year after Lucky's imprisonment and ended up running back to Italy to escape murder charges. When Vito fled, Lucky passed the mantle to Frank Costello and stabilized the family. But over in Italy, Vito was thriving. It took him about five minutes to get in with Mussolini via Mussolini's son-in-law, and start supplying the criminals behind Il Duce with cocaine. I wouldn't doubt if Mussolini's stable of prostitutes came from Vito, too. Under Mussolini's wing, Vito set up new bribery and extortion rackets, ran the drug trade, and openly engaged in politics, donating millions to Mussolini's party and getting some shiny medals in return. 
Lucky was not impressed. Neither was the U.S. government. Both our military and domestic law enforcement was keeping a side eye on the prolific gangster over in Italy. This was on top of, and related to, what was happening with Meyer and the American Nazis. After years of international tension and expansion by Mussolini's fascists and Hitler's Nazis, Europe entered its Second World War in September 1939, when Germany invaded Poland. America remained out of it until an event from which we could no longer turn away. But for the two years in between, we were in a domestic, clandestine war with some very nasty American Nazis. Along with Meyer and the Minutemen, the FBI had also infiltrated the American Bund's meetings and communications. Perhaps they even followed Meyer in. But in they were, and what they found was a ring of German spies. This counterintelligence case would become known as the Duquesne spy ring, named after a key figure, Frederick Duquesne, a South African Boer, who'd been a career spy, stretching back to before the First World War. Duquesne had built a network of spies in America of German heritage that would become the biggest spy ring capture in FBI history. Hitler and Germany's Abwehr Intelligence Organization were very serious about infiltrating and isolating America through the Bund and Duquesne. And both presented a terrible dilemma for our government. These were naturalized Americans. What on earth could be done about U.S. citizens placing their loyalties for their nation of origin above the nation that embraced them? Were we to deport them all? Well, another solution presented itself, and it bubbled up from the brains in Meyer's fight against the Bund. These American Nazis were getting financial and propaganda support from Germany. If it weren't for that, Meyer and his Minutemen would have been able to punch them back into the shadows. Money. Always it's the money. And the propaganda. A weapon of war in and of itself. So, the lobbying for an official act from Congress began and was passed in 1938. FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, was born. It became illegal for American citizens to accept financial support from and disseminate the propaganda for a foreign power without registering as such with the U.S. government. As for the Duquesne spy ring, exposing and prosecuting its agents was a huge feather in J. Edgar Hoover's cap. To this day, 
the FBI wears that feather solely as its own. But the intelligence that captured and eventually took down the spy ring came from decoding their encrypted radio intercepts. And there just wasn't anyone within the FBI who could conduct that level of intelligence and investigation. Of course, it was Elizabeth Friedman who broke the whole case. J. Edgar stole her glory once again. And it wouldn't be his last act of thievery from our heroine. I spoke with author Warren Glover once, a while back, about his novel Nazis in Newark, the definitive work on how our Jewish gangsters, the Minutemen, and key figures in the Jewish-American community all fought to defeat Hitler's German-American Bund. It was a decade-long fight, at least. And even though I'd read his work before speaking to him, it still hadn't sunk in how that fight ended. Maybe it was too much to process at once for me. But Warren, bless him, made it very clear. The fight between the Jewish mafia and the American Nazis came to an abrupt end in a single moment. In December 1941, 5,000 miles west of Newark. That day was December 7th, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. America would enter the war now and fight the Axis Alliance on their own turf. Pearl Harbor was one of those rare events that changed everything so abruptly, entire chapters in history just got lost. Like the fight between the Minutemen and the German-American Bund. Even so with Duquesne. That case hadn't even concluded in court by the time December 7th came around. And the once dominant news headline of a giant spy ring operating in America was wiped clean from the front page. There was only one story now. The war. That's what the event of December 7, 1941 did. And in a kitchen in Washington, D.C., just like the Jewish gangsters with understanding the true aims of the Nazi party, someone knew about December 7th before it happened. William and Elizabeth were together when Pearl Harbor was attacked. William started pacing, troubled. Elizabeth would later learn that he had worked on and cracked the seemingly impenetrable Japanese cipher machine named Purple. William was deep into Japan's diplomatic war cables with their access partners long before December 7. And as he paced the house, Elizabeth heard him saying over and over about our military leaders But they knew, they knew, they knew. 
When William gathered himself, he left immediately for the Army's cryptologic bunker of secrecy. There, he received the briefings on the thousands of Americans killed and the extent of damage to the Pacific fleet that now lay on the ocean floor. William would rack his brain for weeks, if not years afterwards, trying to figure out what went wrong. How could the intelligence that he had gathered on Japan's clear intent and planning of an attack not have made its way into the proper hands in Pearl Harbor, who could have mitigated this tragedy, at least in terms of human life? The answer was found in the nature of secrecy itself. You see, the priority to protect the secret that William had cracked the secrets of purple so that we could keep cracking Japan's secrets without them knowing of our capability to do so was deemed the higher priority. The actual secret communications that William cracked, warning of an impending attack, did not make their way to the authorities who could have saved lives. Doing that would have exposed the perceived more important secret that we, the United States, could crack Japan's secret communications. Author Jason Fagone put the secrecy dilemma this way, quote, Do you take risks to keep a secret that may save hundreds of thousands of future lives, or do you expose the secret to save a small number of lives right now? William called the fallout the trauma that occurred in his own brain from having to grapple with such a dilemma, cryptologic schizophrenia. In the end, the nature of secrecy is madness. That's the arc of it. Or put even more simply, there is a point with secrecy where one must face its ultimate end point. Either you break the secret, or the secret breaks you. Pearl Harbor brought a swift and mighty change for the other freedmen in that kitchen. Elizabeth would have a new agency, and this one would oversee her, not the other way around. That's what war does. There had been prior moves between the Navy and the Coast Guard to try and get her work under the Navy's control. When it came to radio towers, no one was better than Elizabeth at decrypting the communications they intercepted and mapping the greater clandestine activity across coastal waters. The Navy considered all of it their territory and seemed to resent the Coast Guard's superior force in both signal intercepts and patrolling open water. They wanted Elizabeth as their own secret weapon. Well, December 7 sealed it. Of course, Elizabeth, as a civilian, could decline to continue working for her country, and she despised the Navy enough that the thought may have crossed her mind 
But if it did, it was only for a fleeting moment. This was war. And our hero knew where she needed to be. Where the Navy would place her was where her skills were needed the most. The South American desk. Argentina. Brazil and the rest of the Nazis' enablers south of our own borders. It would turn out to be a critical stage in the war against fascism, one where if she hadn't been there, it's very likely we would not have prevailed. This is the story of Elizabeth Abfer, Germany's intelligence organization, and the Enigma machine and it deserves a proper space of its own. Besides, I need to leave you with the other secret weapons that naval intelligence was bringing into its employ, Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky. Almost two months to the day after Pearl Harbor, fire broke out on the USS Lafayette, formerly the SS Normandy, an ocean liner sitting in the New York Harbor. It had just been converted to a troop carrier and was about to begin its new job of taking 10,000 American troops at a time across the Atlantic. The Lafayette was a prime target for the Nazis, and the FBI's roundup of the Duquesne spy ring was proof that Germany had its agents on our turf, in New York, no less, in the months just before Pearl Harbor. So, the fire caused a panic. We were at war. We'd entered it because of an attack on a domestic naval station, a military port. There was serious concern over the presence of German U-boats along our Atlantic coastlines. And now, an ocean liner, retrofitted to be a U.S. troop carrier, was ablaze. Although the fire ended up being attributed to a welding accident, the Office of Naval Intelligence had conducted its broader analysis and determined that we were vulnerable in our ports. And someone in that office had what they thought was a brilliant idea. Who controlled the ports? The mob. Ships, 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 remember? Now, where that person got that idea is up for great debate. Some authors pin it to Captain Roscoe C. McFall, the chief intelligence officer of the 3rd Naval District, which included New York and New Jersey. McFall even got the backing of Rear Admiral Carl Espy, director of naval intelligence, ultimately the same boss for whom Elizabeth worked. And there is some reporting that an unidentified voice within ONI had found out about this plan to use the mob to help gain U.S. intelligence control over the ports and objected profoundly to the idea. These gangsters were dangerous and they were thieves. Someone inside ONI knew this, knew them, the syndicate, and warned the brass at the tippy top, don't do this, don't cross this line. But the warning was unheeded. That's the story from the intelligence side. Lucky Luciano left his own version in A Last Testament 
for anyone to read. It's full of stories, and one of them is how he used the fire on the Normandy and his knowledge of Mussolini and Meyer's knowledge of Hitler's Bund to orchestrate his release from prison, maybe even stop his deportation. Lucky's plan? He would do a favor for America that was so great, so grand, so patriotic, that the Navy would recommend a full pardon from New York's governor. A man who, by the time the pardon request came around, and as only the irony of the world beneath would have it, was fully versed in the lore of Lucky Luciano. Thomas Dewey. This story is coming full circle to break our world in a way that it can never be repaired, to cross that Rubicon. It is a point of no return so profound that the men who hunted Meyer and Lucky until each of their last breaths even gave it a name. Operation Underworld. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman. Editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to season one, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and our sit-down episodes on Thursdays wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.